Okay, flip to Ecclesiastes 1, and that's after the book of Proverbs. Ecclesiastes, we're going to look at uh, 1 through 11. This is going to be a 15-week series. And uh, interestingly enough, I I preached this years ago. I think it was like 2013, if I recall correctly, which it's hard to say that that's seven years ago already, but it was a while ago. And it was kind of, it was kind of a, it was an interesting series, but I kind of wanted to go back and redo it because I, I, there's some other things I'd like to share and talk through, especially when we consider Christian Reconstruction and uh, the, the idea of Solomon, you know, sort of playing, playing out these worldviews and testing them out, if you will, to see, you know, where do we find satisfaction? So preached it years ago, but we're going to do it again. And uh, so this this morning will be the vanity of life. And so um, let's pray and then we'll work our way through the text. Our Father and God, we ask and pray this morning that, that you would give us grace to hear the ethics of your word. Um, we pray pray with faith and with confidence that your spirit is, is with us, teaching and leading and illuminating us. And so we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. So let's just, as, as kind of our custom has been with walking through texts, we'll just kind of read and then I'll comment and then we'll pull it all together. So you'll want to just follow along there, specifically in verse 1. It says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So when you think about the word Ecclesiastes, you should know that we get the, the name for this book um, the English name, we get it from the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, um, and it was uh, abbreviated as the LXX, the 70. There were um, men who came together to translate the, what we call the Masoretic text, the, the Hebrew uh, version of the Old Testament, and they put it into Greek, which would have been very much something that the, Jesus himself and the apostles would have been familiarized with that, the Greek version of the, of the Hebrew text. So in, in the Greek version, it's Ecclesiastes, and that is simply what we get from the Hebrew word, which is found in verse 1, and that word is kohelet. That's where it's translated preacher, kohelet. Um, that word comes from kahal, which is actually the word we get to assemble or to gather together. So kahal is the Hebrew word for like an assembly, and then the Greek idea took over in ecclesia, which was where we get church. But it really should be understood to be an assembly. It's a group of people, a gathered people, a social order gathering of people for various reasons. Not just a church service like we tend to think of it, um, but where political deliberation would have happened. A lot of this stuff, actually, um, Jordan had covered in his message a couple weeks ago. So this, this word, is it's a title, kohelet. The preacher, it's a gatherer. In other words, it's someone, uh, what we might even call him a churchman, someone who, who gathers people together, and there's a specific, what we would call even today, like preaching, like a sermon like this. Um, this person is the, the teacher in the assembly of the people of God. So our word church comes from ecclesia. So Ecclesiastes is the, is the title. It's the churchman. It's the preacher. That's why the NASB translates, translates it that way. So there is debate when we think about the book. We're going to talk about the book as a, as a whole in a little bit. But there's debate on who the author really is. And despite the debate, I think it's pretty clear. And I think from other references, we can defend the fact that this is actually Solomon, the son of David. 
that it was Solomon, probably written maybe around 935 BC. Um, Solomon was, as you know, the heir to David's throne. David wanted to build God a temple, but uh, God said, no, 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 I'm going to build your house, and then your son's going to build mine, so to speak. So David, or Solomon rather, the son of David, he's writing at the end of his life. He's probably old at this point. He's aged, and he's reflecting on his life. And I think he's reflecting on where he had gone wrong. Uh, reflections on wealth, relationships, all these sorts of things he's going to deal with. So it's a reflection, I think, on where he's gone wrong. Now, remember a few things about Solomon. He built the temple in Jerusalem. We know that. Um, he asked God for wisdom. Remember, God had you know, said, ask, ask for whatever you wish. And he asked God for wisdom. And Solomon was thus the wisest of all men, except for Jesus. Um, he was David's son. He was the heir to the throne. He also, however, had many wives, <laughs> many, well, a whole lot of wealth. Um, he had a lot of experience in life, as we'll see in the rest of the book. So Solomon, he's, he's writing as a man who had it all. He had it all. He makes it clear, though, that there is more to life than just having it all. Uh, he, he's encouraging his listeners to basically not make the same mistake that he did. Look at verse 2. And this is kind of like his main point, the thrust of his point here. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. The word vanity is havel in Hebrew. Havel means breath, like in Isaiah 57, 13, or, or vapor. Proverbs 21, 6, you could translate it as vapor. It's the thing you see when you're outside and it's cold and you breathe and you can see, quite literally see your breath. You ever done that, kids? You kind of, it's, it's fascinating. But does it just stay there and linger? No, what happens? It's gone, right? It goes away eventually. All the heat that came out of your lungs, went into the cold, formed a vapor, but then eventually it just acquiesces to the cold and eventually the, the breath is gone. That's what the word means, vanity. It is this vapor. Um, and interestingly enough, that's actually where we get the name Abel in the book of Genesis. His name is Havel, vapor. And part of the reason is he was born to, to Adam and Eve and then his, his life was cut short if you remember, because Cain killed him. So that's the same word we get in, in, in Genesis. So he says, vanity of vanities. This is a, super, a superlative. It's the, out of all the superlatives pertaining to, to things that are fleeting, Solomon, he rests his case on this. Everything, he says, all of it is transitory. It is futile. It is vanity. Everything. All of life, he says. He says the same thing at the end of the book in, in chapter 12, verse 8, which is basically his bracketing of his teaching. And then in the end, if you recall, the famous, the real famous thing about Ecclesiastes is at the very end, he says, look, fear God and keep his commandments. At the end of the day, that's where this is all going. But before he gets to that grand conclusion, there's a whole lot of stuff here. Now, according to the psalmist, we are, quote, mere breath. That's Psalm 39, verse 5. We are mere breath, and our days will vanish like a breath. That's Psalm 78, verse 33. Sort of this idea of when Psalms tells you, you know, God, teach us to number our days. Why are we supposed to number our days? So that we don't waste our time <laughs> on 
needless things. But our life is like a breath. It is like vanity. It's like a vapor. And if you recall from James, in the book of James, chapter 4, verse 14, he says, life is a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. No doubt quoting from Ecclesiastes. So when he says that all, he says all is vanity, he's saying that the, the totality of existence, all of our existence, apart from God, mind you, is without real value or meaning. It's without real value or meaning. It's, it's short-lived. It's pointless. It's vanity. Um, money eventually runs out. Or if you're Venezuela, it, it becomes utilized for other things like kindling. Okay, because they had inflated the money system so bad, it means nothing. Money eventually, that's what happens. Clothes. Clothes fade, clothes tear. Eventually you have to get new clothing. They have to be replaced. Um, cars depreciate the moment you drive it off the lot significantly. Um, houses eventually get torn down. Eventually. Um, things go bad. The foundation cracks. Um, plumbing goes bad. Paint gets cracked. Things happen. Um, power and authority is always looking for more of the same. Not just something physical, but something metaphysical, something like power and authority. We see that all the time in the political arena. More power, more authority, and it's never enough. Pleasure never fills its quota. There's always more pleasure to have, more things to pursue. Um, knowledge, something like knowledge, uh, Paul says, puffs up. There's never an end to the knowledge scheme, right? You can always learn something. You can always listen to a podcast. Aaron and I were joking about that this week. Like, I, I can't listen to too much. I get overwhelmed. It just, I have to shut it down. It's just too much. Um, what about work? Work, you have to go back to work the next day. There's always something that needs to happen. What about things like death? By the way, these are things Solomon's going to cover. Death, it's inescapable. It's unavoidable. There's something we learned this week from the tragedy in California. It's that these superstars and larger-than-life people with all the money, I was sad too. It's a, it's a sad tragedy, but no one escapes that ever. It's the great equalizer, right? So he clarifies what he means by all in the next verse. Look at verse 3. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? All his work, all his toil. Under, under the sun, you need to know, because it's going to come up again, is life on, its, on this earth apart from the creator God. Okay, That's what he means by that. Life under the sun. Life here in this measly existence, which is just going to go away for a short period of time, under the sun, apart from God. Life, life without a theological world and life view. That's what he's saying. In other words, this, uh, Solomon's giving us a humanist world and life view. What, what advantage is there? What profit is there? What is there with all the work we do, with all the toil we do? What is it, how does it have any meaning under the sun? Apart from God imputing meaning or giving meaning, what is there to life? Jesus says something similar, and you'll remember this in Matthew 16. He says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his life? Jesus is being rhetorical. What's the answer? Nothing. There's nothing that can profit you if you lose your soul to eternity in hell. There's nothing. There's no profit. 
See, if all we have is the material world before us, then what discernible advantage is there to laboring and working? You know, some of you are, are so foolish to start a new business. <laughs> Why would you do that? It's pointless, right? There's no, there's no point to it. Why not just retire early and become a nihilist? What's the advantage, especially when you look at the material world? What gain can someone possibly have when all we get day in and day out is more of the same? Which is what he's going to say in the next three verses, four verses. Look at verse four through seven. He's going to illustrate. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets. And hastening to its place, it rises there again, blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north. The wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses, the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. Life, it seems at first glance, is... It seems to be this endless wheel of spinning monotonously into this ever-increasing repetition. Uh, the same cycle, sun up, sun down. Uh, all these different things. For example, a man is born in one generation only to die within another generation. It happens all the time. He arrives on the scene of history only to be escorted off the stage in what can only be described as a blip on the radar of history. To the contrary, uh, the earth, man comes and goes, but the earth, it's here forever. It's been here for a long time. It's going to be here the next day, and the next day, and the next day. Man, it's interesting. It's, I think what Solomon's getting at is this. Man, man was from the dust, if you recall. There's this connection to the earth. There's a reason that this is our, um, the place God has given us. But man's here today. He's gone to tomorrow. But yet the dust from whence he came remains again and again, right? To dust you shall return. See, this, this weariness is demonstrated in the natural elements. We have earth, we have the sun, which is fire, we have wind, and we have water all here. The Greeks were fascinated with those elements. The sun, in verse 5, it hastens or it pants, literally the word for panting. It pants, it rises and falls. How exhausting. Um, Unless you're a heliocentrist, then it stays in the center and we just revolve around it, but that's for another day. Um, the wind, it blows aimlessly, which is interesting because Jesus says the same thing in verse John 3 about the spirit, like the wind blows to and from. So there's some language there. There's no actual gain. The wind just kind of goes. Some days it's windy. Other days it's just calm and just kind of topsy-turvy all over the place. Water, think about water. Water is the same. It just flows into the sea repeatedly and repeatedly. I think Solomon was probably thinking about the Dead Sea, the lowest place on the earth. It, the Jordan River goes into it, as do other rivers, and it never gets full. That's crazy. It just keeps getting water and getting water, but it's never full. So he says basically the entire world, the entire world doesn't gain anything. So neither does man under the sun. Verse 8 and 9. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. 
that which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. You've heard that phrase. You might have even said it recently. See, no matter where you look, life under the sun, Solomon says, is wearisome. It's tiresome. All things in life are monotonous. There's this level of monotony to it. It's futile. It's fleeting. It's, it's passing. It's fading. All these things around us, it's just one thing after the other, right? Uh, cars get rust and things just happen. It's this ceaseless round of tireless activity. So man can't even speak of its futility. That's what he says here in verse 8. You can't even tell it. You can't even speak of it. It's absolutely pervasive in every single area of life. Think about the monotony of having to clean dishes every day just to use them again. That's insanity. Or, and then you can't even escape it if you try to get paper plates because then you got to get more. That's the monotony he's talking about. Day in and day out. There's something, there's always something to see, um, something to hear, he says, always something to experience, but it's more of the same. The ear is never full. The eyes are never, you can never see enough. There's always something more to experience. This repackaged monotony after repackaged monotony. Sorry to tell you, this is a little bit of a depressing book. <laughs> but there's a lot of hope. Just stick with it, right? Verse 10 and 11. Is there anything of which one might say, see this, it is new? <laughs> right? There's nothing new under the sun. Can anyone possibly say that? Already it has existed for ages which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things and also of the later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. There's nothing new under the sun, so let's not pretend that something's actually new. I've, you've heard it said like about theological ideas that, you know, new theological concepts are just repackaged old heresies, which may have some truth for it, probably. But if it's, it's always a repackaged old thing. If we're honest, there, there's, there's this plague that haunts human existence. It haunts us all. We work and work only to see that that work amounts to nothing, historically speaking, apart from God, mind you. See, all of our efforts are soon forgotten. There's no remembrance of early thing, earlier things. Do you recall much of the things you received, whether it's at Christmas time or whatever, when you were a child? Maybe there's a couple toys that stand out. I had a sweet light bright when I was a kid. I do remember it, but most of it I've forgotten. But in the moment, wasn't it like the most exciting thing? But you don't remember, really. It, it doesn't shape you 30 years later, 40 years later. You see, entropy is a reality. Things break down. Things go wrong. So what does it profit a man? What does it profit a man? He, he gains nothing, not even the memory of his struggle. You were probably so frustrated about something 10 years ago, you don't remember what it was. You, you have no idea. See, nature itself, he says, is futile. It's a vapor of repetition. And so is human activity. Life is vanity. It's fleeting. Like, like vapor, you can't catch it or contain it. You can't control it. You don't know when your last day is. See, history plows through the halls of time only to find its rest in short-lived rooms of fading memories. 
fading memories. That's all that's left. So that's the first section, the prologue, if you will, of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Maybe we should give you some hope now. <laughs> the, two, the, two, the book's two central themes can be boiled down to this. The first theme is it's all about autonomy versus theonomy. It's all about man governing himself uh, by God's word, God's law, being satisfied in God, treasuring God above all things, right? Or it's man being a law unto himself. That's the major theme. But there's also kind of the secondary theme that just keeps popping up, and it's related to the first theme. And it's basically the sovereignty of God versus the sovereignty of death. Because if life is all there is here, it's short-lived kind of you do you and live your truth and you know, we're all going to die someday, that sort of the mindset. Like, if that's all there is, then death is sovereign. It's all-consuming, right? But there isn't. There's this sovereignty of God. So Ecclesiastes is this, it's a theological book, but it's also a very practical look at life from the perspective of a man who wants to get his own way. This is what selfishness looks like when you just tease it out into all these areas of life. See, in a manner of speaking... It's this treatise on the death of meaning. Not just the meaning of death, but the death of meaning. So you might describe it as backwards rhetoric. Uh, Solomon, he uses foolishness to rebuke foolishness. Because already in the very beginning, you're, you're thinking, this guy is senile. Like, he is out of his mind. But he's actually telling you a story. Because at the end, we know the end. Fear God, keep his commandments. Like, that's the point of life. But if you don't have that, what do you have? And he's going to tell you foolishness. He's going to use foolishness to rebuke foolishness. It's, it's an attempt to draw out the foolishness of foolishness. That's why Ecclesiastes is rightly considered wisdom literature. There's no depressing literature. <laughs> if there was, people would throw this book into it. But it's not. It's actually wisdom. It's counterintuitive wisdom. It's in its own special way. It's, it's a reductio ad absurdum, right? You're demonstrating the absurdity and the logical fallacies of autonomous living. That's what, that's what he's doing here. See, if the book had, a, I imagine it this way, if the book had a welcome sign hanging over it, it would read this. You want life apart from God? Welcome to despair. If, if you were to ask me which Bible book in the Bible um, best resembles the concept of what we call pushing the antithesis, I would tell you it's this book. This book is pushing the antithesis. You don't want Jesus Christ? You don't want God in your life? Then let's explore what that means. Let's explore what it means for all these things. Wealth and life and money and leg, you know, uh, progeny, your, your, your children's children's children. In one regard, it is depressing, but in another regard, it's actually the mo one of the most brilliant books ever written. See, Solomon wants you to despair of life under the sun so that you will turn to the, as the other prophets call Jesus, the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness, namely Jesus Christ. You, this is pushing the antithesis. The, the drudgery and monotony of life without God is actually supposed to be depressing. It's supposed to be that way. That way you won't turn to it and search for hope somewhere other than God. 
See, Ecclesiastes in a nutshell is this. If you want autonomy, then you better be prepared to eat its repugnant fruit. If you want to be a lawn to yourself, if you want to live life your way, apart from God, then you better buckle up, buddy, because it's going to get nasty. And you better eat the fruit of autonomous living. Thus, Ecclesiastes is really a, it's a, it's a direct attack on, on human autonomy. It's a, it's a direct attack on socialism. It's a direct attack on, on enlightenment thinking, where man is the center of everything. It's also a direct reta- um, attack on what we have today, postmodern relativism. So Ecclesiastes is, will strip down all the fi- false ideologies. It's going to strip down all of the abusive idols that we love to cling to. And it's, and it's going to take away all the unfortunate false remedies that, that you and I might be tempted to acquire while living life in God's earth. It's going to take it all away from you. You can't have those things. Now, regarding another aspect of the, of the book as a whole, we need to see Ecclesiastes as very much utilizing Genesis in order to make its point. Solomon would have been, obviously, very well versed in the book of Genesis, it was a book that the Jews, especially at that time, would have been very much uh, would have known, that would have been circulated. It would have been a well understood that this is the story of God, the story of man, the story of Israel in the beginning, right? In Genesis, we know of the sovereignty of God. He's the creator. In the beginning, God. Ecclesiastes speaks of the same. Genesis speaks of God being the maker of time, Evening and morning each day, if you remember the creation story. Well, what does Ecclesiastes tell us? He controls the seasons, right? A time for each season, which we'll see in a couple, couple chapters. The famous bird song, right? Uh, uh, the birds, to every season, turn, turn, turn. Genesis tells us that God made all things, and Ecclesiastes affirms that there is still good out there in the world, that man was created upright. Um, both Genesis and Ecclesiastes affirms that about man. Adam and Eve, they were created for fellowship with God and one another. Ecclesiastes will say the same thing. Um, Think about this connection. In the garden, humans broke that relationship with God. They were driven out of the garden, we know. They they suffered the consequences of a a God-cursed creation. What does Ecclesiastes explore? The theme of toil and death and curse. Same thing. Um, the evil of the human heart of Cain killing Abel, whose, whose name again is Havel. Ecclesiastes builds on that particular idea of sin meeting futility and short-lived experiences. There's one more comparison I want to make, <clears throat> and this will be familiar to you. In your bulletin, we, we model our, our gathering and what we do and our praying and our singing and so on. We model it after God's covenant model. We see the five points in Deuteronomy specifically, um, but there are themes all throughout the rest of the Bible, even into the book of Revelation. But the main theme of autonomy and theonomy, that's the great antithesis of history. Those are the two ideas that war against each other um, ever since Adam and Eve decided to do their own thing. So autonomy and theonomy, they can be compared in the following, following way. And I was thinking back to this um, when I had preached it years ago, and I didn't even realize it at the time, but uh, a lot of these ideas were developed by Gary North. He has a very small um, commentary on Ecclesiastes, an economic con- commentary. So I had actually forgotten about it. I didn't even realize he had it. I had to, to re-download it. 
Um, but he has these, these, these things. When we consider sovereignty, the first point of the covenant, what does theonomy teach us? God's law teach us about sovereignty. Well, it says this. God is sovereign and authoritative. He, he's the source we know of all meaning, of all purpose, of all history, of, of eternity. Well, what, is, what does autonomy teach us? What is, what, is, what is it about man that's... What happens with that point of the covenant? Well, death becomes sovereign. It, it devours everyone. It devours everything. It becomes just this unending consumption of all of life. So that's the first point of the covenant. What about the second point when we think about authority? What does God's word, God's law teach us about authority? Well, the particular revelation of God in history is authoritative. The Bible is the expression of God's authority. What about man's law, man's own way, when he does things under the sun? What does it tell us about authority? Well, the mind of each man becomes authoritative for himself, right? But, but only as, 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 only as long as he's alive to exert and, and assert his, his rebellion. That's authority. What about law? The third point of the covenant. Well, we know that God has revealed his law in time and in space through his covenants and his Bible. We know what God expects from us. But what does the autonomous man think about law? Well, all law is subject to change depending on pragmatism and pragmatic considerations. You get our president tweeting out, I'm pro-life, except for these three instances. And then you realize, well, actually, that's consistent with the pro-life movement. And you start to see that law is subjective. It changes. That's autonomous thinking. You know, abortion, okay, except for these instances. No, 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 thou shalt not kill. So that's the difference between how we view law, whether it's, doing thinking God's way or thinking man's way. Well, the fourth point of the covenant, we, we boil it down to judgment. What about theonomy? Well, God gives meaning to that which is worthless and that which is worthwhile. He also tells us that which is foolish and that which is wise. God tells us those things. God gives those judgments. But what happens if man does his own thinking? Well, autonomous men, they, they proclaim their subjective judgments, right? How, how, they have to face a reality, though. Death imputes no meaning. Death imputes no meaning. And thus, it's absurdity which governs, it's absurdity which, at the end of the day, is what governs rebellious men. Absurdity. You're reduced down to, to that apart from God. And then the last point of the covenant is time. Under God's law, history is linear, it's cumulative, it's progressive, it's victorious. God, he gives inheritance and gifts to his people, and history is based on his promises. There are blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. And the unique thing about Ecclesiastes is he's going to talk about how time progresses and, and how uh, you know, the, the, the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the just, Proverbs says. These ideas of... How does God work in time to build his kingdom? But autonomous men, well, history, you've heard it, it's popular to say now, it's this karmaic cycle. Ha ha, karma, whatever that is. You start to attribute history and time as being that. It's this cycle of karmaic activity. Progress, it's only an illusion. You can't really progress without God. Um, success is never really real. If, if death gives no meaning, what, 
Your success is another man's failure, but who says which is which? Why does it matter? It's a figment of our imagination. So I, wanna, I just want to apply this thinking. The, the preacher proclaims, he says that life under the sun is vanity. It's futile. It's fleeting. He has looked to nature and he's found it to be just endless repetition. He's looked at man's existence and he's found no real meaning under the sun. Apart from God, there is no meaning. There is no purpose to our work and to our labor. There is no meaning. You cannot find it apart from God. That's the vanity of life. The thrust of what he says here in the first 11 verses is this. Apart from God, you gain nothing from all your labor, nothing from all your toil. That's why, by the way, there is a Christian way to wash dishes. There is a Christian way to bake a cake. Not only are you doing those things to the glory of God, you're serving others with it. Day in and day out. The monotony actually has meaning. But we'll get to that in a minute. Apart from God, you gain nothing from your toil. Then he asks in verse 3, what advantage? What advantage does man have in all of his work which he does under the sun? What is the advantage? Now, this, this question, we need to think biblically. It requires a biblical answer, and I think only obviously a biblical answer can, can, can answer it. If a man is only that which he makes himself, that's the fuel for the engine of enlightenment autonomy, right? If that's all a man is then meaning is entirely relative and it's not fixed. What's meaningful to you may not be meaningful to the next person. Think of the abortion debate. Meaning, it's meaningful to you that life is precious and that people are made in the image of God. But it's not meaningful to the person who says, no, slaughter the children. There's something happening there. And it's all about this issue of, of meaning. We serve the living God, which means that meaning and purpose and knowledge, if it's to reflect God's nature, must be fixed and graspable. That's my definition of knowledge. It has to be fixed and it has to be understood. It has to be graspable, right? If it, it must be unalterably immutable and unchanging and it has to be comprehensive. That's knowledge. It has to be comprehensive revelation from God. It, it, it's fixed and it's unchanging because God is transcendent. God is fixed and unchanging. The scriptures say that. And knowledge is rooted in him. So it has to be objective. You don't get to just have your opinion. Well, you have your opinions, I have mine. No, 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 no. No one gets to do that. There's God, God's opinion and our decision to obey it. But it also has to be graspable. We have to understand it. And the reason it is, is because God is also imminent. He is near. So knowledge has to be fixed because God is transcended, but it has to be understandable. Calvin called it baby talk. God came down to us in the person of Christ and spoke baby talk to us because we're just gibbering along. But that's what the revelation of God does. So, th so the biblical answer to the problem of meaninglessness in a world apart from God and, and purposelessness lies squarely on the shoulders of the nature and character of God. See, if life is to be lived under the sun in an autonomous state of resistance to God, then man is going to always have to search for some sort of justification for knowledge, some meaning that may make sense to him, some purpose for his existence. Um, that's why Proverbs says, those who hate me love death. 
That's all there is. See, if he won't have those things with God, he's going to have to look everywhere else. And guess what? He will come short each and every time. See, <clears throat> Matt read from the parable of the rich fool from, from, um, um, from Luke 12. And I think it illustrates this principle nicely. More possessions require more storage facilities. And if that's all that man wants to do is to acquire for himself, then what does Jesus call the man? I love it. He calls him a fool. Jesus uses the words, you fool. If that's all he wants to do, his life will be required of him. This man is just gathering. Oh, I'm, I'll get more and more. I'll build bigger barns. I'm getting more and more. We'll just buy a bigger house. This never-ending pursuit of more and more. And Jesus says, if, if you're going to do that apart from God's plan and blessing of the nations and healing of the nations and those ideas, Jesus will call you a fool. Your life will be required of you this very night. There's nothing else for you. And what advantage does this man have in all of his work and his gain? Jesus says nothing. There's no advantage. His storage barns will go, out, go elsewhere. He, he's a vapor. See, fools are people who, who fail to consider that their life is indeed a vapor. That's what fools do. They, they fail to consider that. But Christians are those who know that their life is a vapor, but they live accordingly in obedience to God. That's the difference. That's where meaning is found. That's where, that's where purpose is found. And this is why the gospel ends up being such good news. Your toil and your labor actually does matter for the kingdom of God. You don't see it every day. You, you don't see the drudgery in the drudgery when you're just, you know, packaging products repeatedly, you know, and it, and it seems just, well, this is monotonous. But then you think, well, this is business and economics or you know, Christians gaining wealth for the purpose of the kingdom, for, for growing and spreading the gospel and so on and so forth. There's meaning there. And, and no doubt, you'll recall this verse, no doubt in Ecclesiastes, <clears throat> Paul is quoting Ecclesiastes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, unmo unmovable, uh, or immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15. What, is, what does he say here? What benefit is there a man? What advantage is there a man for all his work? Paul has the answer. The answer is Jesus Christ. Life is absolutely vanity if our existence is divorced from the triune God. Our, our labor is in vain. Our projects are all in vain. All of the plans that you think you're going to make, all of it is absolutely in vain. Our work to acquire money, it's in vain. Our work to advance somehow is in vain. In our belief that we can reach some sort of goal apart from God, Living life under the sun, that's in vain. The monotony will destroy you if you fail to have joy in your life. The repetition of every day, diaper change after diaper change, right? Um, potty break after potty break on the road trip, you know. None of that's, that's going to that's gonna bore you to death if you don't have the eyes to see the marvelous nature of the character of God. History will mean nothing to you if you don't worship and serve God. History will mean nothing. God, history, it'll, it'll be this endless cycle of repetition, right? That's why karma is making a comeback in the West here. We're very much into Eastern mysticism. We blended it in with our Western materialism, and now we have all these issues. 
You see, for, for the Christian, though, history under God is the cumulative result of law-abiding faithfulness and gospel preaching, preaching given over to the principle of compound interest. I'll say it again because I don't want you to miss this. History under God is the cumulative result right, of gospel preaching, of faithfulness to God, all of it given over to this principle of compound interest. One gain from obedience is reinvested in the kingdom and it piles on to another gain and another gain and another gain. That's the principle of compound interest. It's economics applied to the kingdom. That's the cumulative effect of kingdom obedience. It's, it's the progressive accumulation of, of, of kingdom advancement. It's God's program for history. But history... And life apart from the principles of God, apart from God, it's vanity, it's futility. For, for confessional Christians who affirm the lordship of Christ in and through time, we know that Jesus' incarnation was in fact that decisive moment when the vanity of life was abolished. So we'll end here. Yes, the work, you know, the world is marked by entropy. Generations come and go, the wind blows, the seas never fold, the sun goes up and down. Again, depending on your view of heliocentrism. <laughs> but we can't even begin to describe it. But God. That's not it. But God. But God is in His kindness set forth, Christ, set forth Christ to rescue, to redeem the foolishness. And Paul indicates in Romans 8, no doubt thinking about Ecclesiastes, that this world, yes, has been subjected to futility, but Christ is making all things new. And that's the only hope for the vanity of life. A gospel solution with an established Lord who's orchestrating history with real meaning, real purpose for a real goal. That's, that's what we believe. The vanity of life becomes the great kingdom of Christ, which means that we are brought into the glory, into this glory to serve the living God with joy, with happiness, with purpose. That's our calling. Let's pray. Um, Father, we thank you for your, for your word. We thank you for... Uh, the lesson of Ecclesiastes, and, and we pray for our study, God, that you would sharpen us, mold us, um, change us, sanctify us, um, and, and give us grace in the process, Father. Uh, we want to be obedient to you and not giving ourselves over to, to the vanity of life, to the world under the sun apart from, from God, a world marked by rebellion. So uh, we pray your spirit to, to be with us, to, to guide us, to comfort us, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.